Hello, fellow A's fans, and welcome back to another Athletics Baseball podcast with your host, Taylor, a podcast where we talk about mostly the Oakland A's. There have been some pretty interesting things going on with the team over the last couple of days, last half week since the previous episode. We're really winding down. There's just one game left in spring training until the regular season starts here on Thursday, and then everyone, or we do at least, get a day off on Friday before what really feels to me like the true opening day, Saturday, April 1st, will kick off with every team playing a game on that day. Which, if you ask me, is probably how it should have been done the whole time. I don't know why you would have an opening day where every team doesn't play. I don't think any other sport does that. It doesn't really make sense. But I think it's the first time it's happened in about 30 years. Well, anyway, today we're going to talk about some roster changes that the A's have made. The final 26-man roster has not been announced as of yet. I'm sure it will be announced Monday after the game or Tuesday, possibly. But there have been some announcements, and there have been some additions and moves to the injury list and other other moves as well. So we're going to look at everything that's happened there. We are going to talk about some controversies in baseball and around the A's lately, and we'll just take a brief look at the games over the last couple of days. Not going to go into those too deeply because this is just the end of spring training and we are still not really working with our rosters, but we are getting really close to the regular season here. But first, I'd like to remind you all just to follow the podcast wherever you currently are listening to it, if you haven't already. Go ahead and give it a review or a rating, if you haven't, and tell a friend, tell a family member, tell someone who likes the A's or someone who likes baseball. Finally, send a little email to the mayor or maybe tweet at her or whatever, the Oakland mayor at officeofthemayor at oaklandca.gov if you want to email her, and just let her know that you, like me and many other A's fans, want the A's to stay in Oakland. Okay, let's look at some roster changes for starters. The A's added reliever Juris Familia on a one-year contract, and to make room, because our 40-man is going to be packed, they put Kirby Sneed on the 60-day injured list, his shoulder... He's got a shoulder strain, unfortunately, which, from what I've seen, I believe that means that his likely appearance will be somewhere in May, maybe late May. He's going to have to essentially first recover from the strain and then go through something like a spring training to get his shoulder stretched out and ready to go. Juris Familia, he's coming off of a down year for him, but his situation is kind of interesting. He played with the Mets for basically his entire career, except for a brief stint in Oakland until 2022, 
where he found himself wandering the league, and he played for two different teams in 2022. Wasn't very good for either of them. So last season, he had a 6.09 ERA. The rest of his career, he's been pretty good with a career average, including last season, of 3.51 ERA. You have to wonder if maybe just being cut loose and bouncing around and not necessarily knowing what his future would hold or, or something like that would play a part for him for his down performance last season, or is it just because it's his 11th season in the big leagues and maybe he's starting to age and lose a little performance? I don't know. He had a really good spring training. I think a 1.6, 1.7 ERA. I think it's fine to take a little risk on him and... If it isn't working, no big deal to just cut him, I think. We already should have a pretty good bullpen, but I would expect maybe him to be around a 4 ERA and just be a reliable middle reliever sort of guy that that most teams would probably want on their team if, if they know that that's what he's going to be doing. And then, of course, there is always the potential upside. He could have a little bit more of a return to his past form, and we just don't really know. But I don't mind seeing this move, especially Kirby Sneed. He is dealing with some injuries, and we can juggle some guys around and see who is going to have the better year with some of our younger guys before we have to kind of commit down the line. We don't really have to do that this season, so we should be fine with that move. Rasinski is going to start the season on the IL, but only the 15-day. He just has tightness in his hamstring, so basically he is going to need to have that hamstring feeling totally fine. I think they just want to be safe. He could probably pitch right now because the hamstring, I think it was tightness about two weeks ago that started, and that is a pretty good amount of time. They probably just want to give him another week or so, make sure that they don't push him and cause an injury because it's a 162-game season, it's a long season, and he figures to be an important part of our starting rotation. So we do want him to be fully healthy before we put him out there on the mound. If it takes another one or two weeks, then that's fine. You know, we've got lots of young guys that I'm sure would appreciate having two or three starts that they can get under their belt in the meantime. Austin Pruitt was having a little bit of back issues recently, a couple days ago, I think, and I guess that apparently he's fine. He's not on the IL or anything, but he is going to be on Triple A starting the season out. And then as far as some of our other guys dealing with injuries, Blackburn, he's still dealing with his fingernail avulsion, is the technical, what his injury is technically termed. Basically, his fingernail tore back from his finger, as I understand. And it happened relatively early on in spring training, and obviously having your fingernail tear off of your finger is going to impact how well you can throw a baseball. And the limiting factor... For something like that is probably how fast is your nail going to grow. So I'm sure he's t been taking biotin and 
whatever else supplements they they're giving him for that, probably telling him to eat a lot of protein. And I hope his fingernails been growing quickly. <laughs> I saw him in spring training. He actually he said that it was coming along well, and that's also what the news has been around uh, when people ask Mark Kotze about him. He's been doing a little bit of pitching as well, flat ground stuff. So hopefully he's ready to go sooner rather than later. The estimation is sometime in April, but whether it's mid-April, end April, we don't really know. Same thing as Rostinsky, really. It's a long season, a couple weeks. Doesn't really matter too much in the grand scheme. And then Manny Pena. I was actually getting pretty high on him looking through some stats when I was going through um, one of my more recent episodes going through the lefty-righty platoon options with our guys because Manny Pena is an older veteran catcher who the biggest thing that teams want from a guy like that is help to teach the younger catchers on our team and work with the pitchers and be a good defensive catcher and his hitting stats are not all that impressive but when you look at the splits his lefty splits are actually really good and have always been really good so I was getting a little bit excited about having him be our catcher against lefty pitchers when Shea needs rest, basically. Because I think that we would have been able to give Shea some rest without really losing much of a step at the plate on those days with Manny against lefty pitchers. He's been dealing with some with some pain and and stiffness and stuff in his wrist that doctors found inflammation and Basically, just nobody knows when he would be ready to go. I guess they put him in a brace, and now it's just a waiting game as far as when the inflammation goes away, I guess. And then maybe you'd want him to have a little uh, minor league time to get back in the groove before you bring him up. So accordingly, the A's have been looking at who the other backup catcher is going to be until essentially Manny Pena is recovered. And they had Yohel Pozo up in spring training, and I think there was some thought that he could be that guy because he's had a little bit of major league time and did fine. Just 21 games, but it's something. And then Kotze had said that Soderstrom was not being ruled out as being used as the backup catcher, but then he later on said that it was more important for Soderstrom to finish his development in the minor leagues before all that. I think that Kyle McCann has seriously been looked at for that sort of a role. Katze named him as the most improved player over the offseason as far as the minor league A's guys go. So that's pretty high praise and, and shows that Kotze thinks pretty highly of him at this point. And then the A's have been doing some stuff with some other catchers in the last couple of weeks, probably with the Manny Pena news, to see who else they could bring in as a backup catcher, presumably. Probably one of the front runners at this point is also Carlos Perez, who is 32 years old, and he was brought into the A's spring training camp where he has been doing very well, although it was just eight plate appearances, so tiny, tiny sample. But he's had some major league experience. He's been 
okay for one or two of his seasons as far as a backup catcher would go, and then the rest of his Major League time consisted of just 39 games over two different years, and it's been a couple years since he's been in the MLB. He's sort of just been bouncing around for the last couple of years, signing as a free agent one year, and then being cut, basically. But the A's have a little bit of experience with him, and I think I remember Katze talking highly about him pretty recently. So I wouldn't be surprised to see him brought in as just sort of a stopgap for maybe a month, maybe two, and probably in this case used as sparingly as possible and just waiting it out until Manny Pena is feeling a little bit better and then he gets the call and they probably just cut Carlos Perez. But like I said, I wouldn't be absolutely shocked to see McCann in that role here because we do have so many catchers coming up that as far as the guys that are not necessarily the number one prospective catcher, like Daniel Susak is considered pretty highly, and Tyler Soderstrom, who may or may not be a catcher, is obviously our number one prospect. But for guys like Kyle McCann, who may not be that number one, number two guy, we don't necessarily have to keep them as close to the chest as we might want to with some of the other guys. So I wouldn't be shocked to see him getting that call either. And then some other stuff going on with the lineups for the start of the season here is Ruiz has been confirmed as an opening day roster guy, and the team has announced using Diaz and Allen, Ledmus Diaz and Nick Allen, platooning at shortstop. So what I had sort of guessed for the infield and honestly almost hoped because it was sort of how the splits, lefty-righty splits, worked out in the best possible way was Kevin Smith on third, platooned with Jace Peterson on third, Smith against lefties, I believe, and Peterson against righties, if I remember that right. And then Diaz as the typical shortstop starting player and Tony Kemp second base against righties, Nick Allen's second base against lefties. Nick Allen had a horrible uh, OPS batting average. Uh, his whole batting stats last year were horrible, but when you actually look at the splits, he was actually pretty good against lefties, and you would assume this season he would be better than last season against both lefties and righties, you would hope at least. That would be the case for all of the young guys that are coming up and still figuring some stuff out that maybe after the first season they work on some stuff over the offseason, come back a little better. But with those splits, you can sort of say, oh, well, he doesn't really need to get any better in order to qualify as a great lineup guy against lefty pitchers. And then maybe you give him some some right-handed days when maybe Diaz needs a day off or something like that. And then you sort of figure out whether he is improved on hitting righties or not. And it looks like the A's went a little bit of a different direction than that. And they've got, like I said, Ledmus Diaz, Nick Allen platooning on shortstop. And then Tony Kemp is going to be probably the 
most day second baseman, assuming, just just making an assumption off of that Diaz-Allen shortstop thing. My guess at this point is also that they might not keep Kevin Smith on the roster as the platoon third baseman guy because they've been using Diaz as sort of the alternate third base when Jace needs some rest. Maybe making me think that they're just going to go, when Jace needs rest, they'll go Diaz on third, Nick Allen on short, Tony Kemp on second, and Aguilar or Noda on first. And then when Jace is playing, it would be Jace Peterson on third, Diaz on second, or Diaz on short, Tony Kemp on second, and whoever on first. So, sort of interesting. I, I think with Ruiz on the roster, I'm still assuming that Pache is making the roster, and I think that that takes Brent Brooker, J.J. Blade, Trent Trent Brooks. I think that these guys maybe are not going to be making the opening day roster, but I do think that we will see most or all of them through the season. And now, finally, the opening day roster announcement that has sort of had A's fans up in an uproar lately, which is Kyle Muller opening day starter as opposed to Fuji. A lot of people have a lot to say about this, and I am finding that a lot of A's fans have become very contradictory with some principles that they claim to espouse in other times and other situations. Namely, they seem to say that the A's are horrible for trying to make some sort of profit, which most or all teams are trying to make some sort of profit, typically. And then they're saying that Fuji should be the opening day starter because it would get more attention and it would get more fans in seats, which would make more money. So do you care about the team making money or do you not care about the team making money? And I will say that just having a, you know, one interesting matchup that gets fans to one game, it doesn't really make a difference in the bottom line for the A's at the end of the season. A couple hundred thousand dollars is not going to get you to sign any better players compared to just not having that happen. Typically, I pride myself as an A's fan in that A's fans are some of the best fans. They love the team. They love the players. They're very supportive. No A's fan boos an A's player. Yankees fans, Red Sox fans, uh, Phillies fans, they'll boo their own players just for having an off day. And I've never seen A's fans do that, and I hope I never do, because you're supposed to be there to support these guys, and they're, they're doing this stuff for us, and we're supposed to be there to support them. And with all this Fuji Muller stuff, I've been seeing A's fans just basically say, oh, we've only got him for one year anyway. Who cares what happens to him? And I really, really don't like to see that. I think that it is a stain on the good reputation of A's fans. I think it's a little bit disgraceful, to be honest. And I think that we have a duty and an obligation as the team to look out for the players that are on our team. And clearly, the A's organization understands that better than a bunch of sorry if this is you, but boneheaded fans saying that we just need to do it because it's more popular or because it'll get us an extra two or $300,000 
as a franchise or because they just want to see it, is it worth potentially harming someone's career or messing up their season? You know, I, I don't think so. I think that we have an obligation. The A's organization obviously agrees with me and not these other people because they are not starting Fuji on opening day. <laughs> and what I mean by it could be harmful for Fuji to start opening day is, if you don't know, Fuji and Otani were both drafted in the same year in the Japanese Baseball League, and they both were phenom players drafted out of high school and looked at as, you know, for these two guys, the sky is the limit, but who do you think is better? And so the Japanese media circus started going around, and the the feeling at the time of the draft was that Fuji was probably going to be the better player. And there was a huge amount of hype around Fuji. Imagine Bryce Harper levels of hype, you know, cover of Sports Illustrated, stuff like that, except potentially more. Uh, Japan is really zealous with their baseball stars. As you can see when you see anything about Fuji these days, any game that he's at, you're going to see lots of Japanese fans in the stands taking pictures, and they're all there just to see him. And the Japanese media after every game, it's a big deal. So you can imagine that it's even more intense over in Japan when these guys are young and ha have all of this spotlight and pressure put on them and, and all this hype. And basically, imagine him getting that as a, as a young guy, 18, 19 years old. And they both had that, of course. And then basically, Fuji started, he was great, and then he started having some struggles in the Japanese Baseball League. And just imagine all the pressure, and then people start calling you a bust, the pressure builds up, so you have to, now you feel like you have to do even more. And it seemed like, looking from what I could see, it seemed like he started to have some mental difficulties, being in the right mind frame to be able to perform well in Japan over the last several years, until uh, the last one or two years he started putting things back together again essentially. And I don't know to what extent that could have been the Fuji-Otani comparisons, but to think that they didn't play any impact in the pressure and difficulties that he faced, I think is a little bit naive. This guy has had zero Major League Baseball starts, not one inning pitched in Major League Baseball. It's different over here. And not only that, the ball is different. The ball is larger than the Japanese baseball, heavier than the Japanese baseball, and less grippy than the Japanese baseball. In other words, probably a lot more difficult to throw. So not only has he been getting used to the American baseball over this time period, he's been getting used to a new country, he's been getting used to new teammates and a new organization and a new place to live, new food, everything that comes with moving to a foreign country. And then on top of all this, you say, 
let's put him up against his quote-unquote rival that everyone is putting this rivalry on him and saying, let's feed him to the media circus and put this extra pressure on him and it would be really meaningful then to all the Japanese fans. Well, he is Japanese, his friends, his family are all Japanese, and to think that that scrutiny and pressure isn't going to come back on Fuji, again, naive. So, you know, in my opinion, we just got to do what's right for him. And then there's other layers of this as well. He was scheduled, essentially, scheduled to start April 1st months ago, when we very first signed him, like two, three months ago. They announced, as soon as the schedule came out, basically, as soon as he was signed, basically, they announced April 1st, Saturday, is Fuji Day, with discounted tickets and shirt jerseys with Fuji's name on the back. That's Saturday, not Thursday. Saturday. And then on top of that, they recently said that Fuji will be pitching every Saturday to keep him on a consistent schedule that is more similar to what he was pitching like in Japan, the schedule he had over there. So there's a million reasons for him to not pitch on Thursday. And to be honest, like I said at the very beginning of this episode, Saturday to me feels more like opening day anyway. A night game on Thursday is kind of not really opening day vibes to me. Like, Saturday day game, now that feels like opening day. <laughs> and the great thing about that is then he doesn't have to match up against Otani. He gets to sort of ease himself into Major League Baseball. You all still get to watch Fuji on Saturday, if you want to, it's not like you're going to be missing out on him. Why do you need to see him against this one particular player? It's silly to me. So give the guy a break. Well, let's jump on over to how the A's have done since Thursday. First, why don't we start with Thursday's game against the Rangers. Tie game, 7-7. Seven to seven. What's the record for most tie games in spring training? I feel like... The A's probably have it now, after this season. Isn't that the third or maybe fourth tie game in spring training for us? It would be strange to assume that there were a lot more than that, so we've got to at least be close. But I'm not going to give you all the stats for all the players. I will say J.P. Sears had a nice start for him that day. Chad Smith lately has been coming out of the bullpen in sort of a fireman-ish situation and throwing less than one inning to just get us out of a, a jam, more or less, is what it seems like. And he's been doing that very well. And essentially, this game, the runs were spread out throughout the game for Texas, two in the first inning, one in the second, two in the sixth, two in the eighth. And the A's didn't score until the fifth inning, but they came back and got those two last runs in the ninth to tie it up. If this was a regular season game at that point, I would say the A's have the momentum and the energy and have a great shot of going into the 10th inning with 
all of the energy on their side, great chance to bring this game home, take that win after that sort of comeback tie right there. Not the result that we want, but it's spring training and results don't matter, but the effort that we want certainly seemed to be there. Quick shout out to Kevin Smith, who went three for four that day with a double and three singles, and then Tyler Wade with two singles as well, and a lot of walks in that game, 10 walks. Friday, there were two games that the A's played, one against the Mariners and one against the White Sox. So the White Sox game, the A's very sadly got shut out. We had, obviously, since it was a split series, split split squad game, we had a lot of our minor league guys in these games. And the White Sox and the Mariners did not seem to have as many minor league guys in, in their games. The A's got shut out by the White Sox, 12-0, to zero, really rough. Moeller was rocky, but... He, so he let in eight runs, but only four of them were earned. And then Garrett Williams, four earned runs in less than an inning. And that's all the runs the A's let in, so the other bullpen guys were great. And Trevor May was really good that game. Like I said, a lot of minor league level sort of guys making appearances, but we just didn't hit. That White Sox game had more of our major league guys as well than the Mariners game, I would say but just didn't hit in that one, and it could have been because we were going against one of the better pitchers on the White Sox, Dylan Cease, who last season had a 2.2 ERA, and he went six innings that game, no earned runs. So, I mean, actually, obviously, no one had any earned runs on the White Sox, but you get my point. Bad game, faced great pitching, and just did not hit it. The Mariners game, we didn't get shut out, but we did lose 15-3. to Dermis Garcia had a home run, and Soderstrom had a double, but it was a lot of young guys for us, and our pitching did not get it done, obviously, as well, just like the White Sox game. When you're letting up 12, 15 runs scored, then it doesn't really matter what you do at the plate, because you're you're giving it away with the pitching. And between these two games, most of the pitchers were minor league guys. So it's not all that surprising that it would play out that way going against a lot of the major league guys from these other two teams. But all that said, it is still obviously disappointing, disheartening to essentially go 25 runs against and three runs for. It was not... Not a good feeling over two games one day, but that was one of those weird split squad things, potentially had something to do with it, and then the Saturday game against the Brewers, much better. We lost that, but sort of like how the Thursday game was a tie, but it was a good tie. This was a loss, but it was a good loss. We hung in there, pitching and hitting-wise. Fuji had a good day. Two runs, six innings, and Charles Hall struggled a little bit, gave up three runs. One of our minor league pitching guys, essentially. And offensively, we 
played a lot of different guys. We had some good production, seven hits, six walks, and obviously we strung them together in the right way to score five runs. It was tied going into the top of the ninth. You can't ask for any more than that. And it's good, even though it's a loss, it's good to see the fight, the struggle. I'm going to keep repeating myself as I have to with that because we don't need to be getting down about games that don't matter when we're showing that we're hanging in there and the players are staying tough. Giants game on Sunday. Obviously, we'd really like to win against the Giants whenever we can, but the pitching did not really give us a great opportunity to do that. Five runs against Wallachuk in 3.1 innings. Uh, Chad Smith came in, put out a fire again, and Adam Aller struggled a little bit. Danny Jimenez let one in, who was really good last year. Jerice Familia threw one inning in that game as well. Sam Mole went scoreless. Stecken Ryder went scoreless. Familia let in one run, but it was unearned. Two strikeouts, two hits. Offensively, we had a little bit of a comeback attempt in the ninth inning with uh, the guy that I mentioned earlier, Carlos Perez, our potential starting backup catcher, hitting a little home run solo shot, and then Pablo Reyes also hitting a solo shot in the ninth. So a little bit of action there in the ninth inning, and a lot of hits to go around. Diaz had a hit, Tony Kemp had a hit, Noda had a hit, Loriano with a hit, Kevin Smith, and then a lot of walks as well. So tomorrow will be the final spring training game of the season, and a couple rest days before the official first game gets itself going. And I do want to talk a little bit about one other bit of controversy that has been making its way around the news lately in the baseball world, which is someone essentially did some journalism and using estimates put out essentially, among other things, the top five most profitable MLB teams, having the A's at number five. A day later, they edited their statement, amended their statement, saying that they basically got it wrong and cut the A's profit in 2022 in half, essentially. And the A's fandom has been a little bit in uproar over this. It's really not a huge deal, but it is recent and relevant, and I did want to just mention it a little bit on this episode. Essentially, his incorrect estimate said that the A's profited like $62 million, I think, in 2022, despite having a 100-loss team, and the corrected still estimate number is $29 million of profit, and a lot of people still have a problem with that because it was a bad team, and people are mad that it was a bad team, and we didn't do well, and we didn't have any players, and we didn't spend any money. But if you just think about it, the reason that we made that profit is because we didn't spend any money. So I kind of find it to be a little bit of a catch-22. I don't know. I think it's okay for teams to make a profit every season. I think it's fine. doesn't really matter. And what I've seen in the past is that the A's sort of subsidize their good years where they spend more 
than their budget and they take a loss with their bad years where they spend less than their budget and they make a little profit, which they then use to fund their over-budget years, essentially. It's all a lot of speculation and estimation because we just don't have access to the books, which is too bad. I would love to see them. Everybody would love to see them. But I don't have any fundamental problem with each and every MLB team or professional sports franchise turning a bit of a profit every year. I do think that we really could have used a little bit extra something, a little extra spending last season, maybe to the tune of 5 to $10 million for one to two reliable, average or better bullpen arms. I think that would have made a big difference for us last season, and it would have essentially guaranteed us to not lose 100 games last season. Because there were a lot of games where we were up by one or two runs late in the game, and you basically, you know, sometimes you'd see a guy come in and you'd be like, I don't feel good about this, and then you would sort of be vindicated in that feeling. And I just think that having a couple of reliable guys in there could have made a big difference. So yeah, I would have I would have really loved to see just that little bit extra of spending last season. And then I'm fine with it because you do have to have rebuilding years. And if you're rebuilding and you're going to be bad and you want that draft pick, the high-level draft pick, then you might as well not spend a lot of money while being bad. Teams do it all wrong. I I don't know all the budgets off the top of my head, but like the Pirates, the Nationals, all, all these bad teams that have good players and they're spending money or wasting these players. If you have one great player, doesn't matter how good they are, you're not being a good team. <laughs> and if you want wins, if you want to maybe get a World Series even, you need a good team. So to me, the rebuild process makes sense. It makes it easier to build a, a team up to come up at the same time together. And if one or two guys don't work out, then you can sign a free agent or trade and try and get somebody for that one or two, those one or two spots. So it's not that I have a problem with occasionally being bad. Everybody is bad occasionally. And the more you try to fight it when it's your time to be bad, sort of the worse it gets for you. The Rangers have been and could be a really, really interesting example of this. So the Rangers, they have been not so great. To tell you what that means, that they have been not so great lately, last season they won 68 games, only 8 more than the A's. They spent a lot more money than the A's. The season before that, they won 60 games, the same as the A's won last season. So last season, the Rangers essentially spent $162 million for a season with eight more wins than the A's, where the A's spent like 40 maybe $50 million. 2021, the Rangers spent $114 million to do exactly the same as the A's did last year, for less than half of that. 
Why spend a lot of money being bad? Why? I don't get it. In 2020, the Rangers came again in last in the division, 22 wins out of 60 for a win percentage of 353, which is worse than a 60-win season. Basically, maybe a 56-57 win season. Uh, Yeah, about a 56-win season, also known as a 106-loss season. Well, in 2020, they spent the equivalent of $170 million on their team, on the roster, on the payroll. 2019, wow, they won 78 games. That's fantastic, except they still spent $147 million to only win 78 games. So you can either have a team that spends a lot of money and is bad, or you can have a team that spends money smartly and is not as bad. So that's just one example of what happens when you have a team that probably needs to go through a rebuild and you just sort of fight it and you fight it and you fight it. And let's look at 2023. Their payroll is $221 million. $221 for 2023. Tell me, do you think that the Rangers are going to win the division? Do you think that the Rangers are going to make a wild card slot? What if the Rangers are not even better than the A's in 2023? What if the A's spend $60 million, maybe $70 million on the roster, and are better than a team that costs more than three times that amount? A team is not all about the money, guys. You gotta, you gotta remember this. There are lots of teams that spend a lot more money than us, and yet we continue to be better than them. And the Angels are low-hanging fruit, kind of. I'm not even going to go there because it kind of feels like it might be mean at this point. But let's let's talk about the Nationals. In 2022, they spent about $157 million for 50, 55 wins. Okay. I don't want to I don't want to hear too many complaints here about the A's. Rebuilding is rebuilding. If you need to rebuild and you don't, then you're going to be in a world of hurt and not just for a year, not just for 2 years like a rebuild. Possibly for 5, 6 years you're going to be stuck with albatross contracts, expensive players who are as as good as a an average replacement level minimum one million dollar a year player, maybe worse, and do you just cut them to free up the roster spot and pay them to sit at home on their butt? It's a tough pill to swallow. I don't know. I I don't hate what the A's do and how they do it. Maybe maybe we need to appreciate it a little bit more. <laughs> well. That's probably all the controversial takes that I can give you in this episode. I will talk to you guys later. I hope you had a great weekend. I hope that you have a great week going forward, a great Monday. I'm still saying that I think the A's could get 75 wins. I'm still liking what I'm seeing. And don't let the haters get you down. Have a great one, guys. See you next time.